Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. One of the modern features on my phone or computer that I appreciate as I prepare to send a text, type an email, or craft something longer like a sermon or a Bible study is the undo function. If I accidentally delete a word, a sentence, a paragraph, sometimes even the whole message, I can make that text reappear. I can correct from my mistake with a simple keystroke in a matter of seconds. And you know, sometimes I think things would be so much better It'd be so much better if life worked that way, right? If we had an undo button, if we could just undo and take back that stupid comment we blurted out without thinking. You know, if we could just undo, just completely erase that argument we started, that thoughtless and hurtful action that we took, that bad idea or ill-conceived plan that we started that blew up in our face. If we could just hit undo. You remember when you were a kid? Do you remember when you were a kid and you'd be playing with your friends and something would go wrong, right? Something that wasn't according to the script, you know, what you were supposed to be doing. And all everyone had to do in that moment was shout, do over, and then you just reset, right? You just reset and restart as if whatever just occurred never happened. Well, despite our childlike imaginations, there are no undo buttons, there are no do-overs in life. Actions, all actions have consequences and we have to live with them, but that doesn't mean our lives have to be defined by them. It doesn't mean we can't learn from them if we rely on the grace of God, the God of second chances. That's the focus of our passage today. That's the focus of our passage as we return to 1 Samuel chapter 26. As we enter into the next part of David's journey, we're gonna experience something of a case of deja vu. Very quickly as this chapter unfolds, everything about the situation David's in as well as how it resolves, it's gonna sound very familiar, like we've been here before. And in fact, it's so similar that this has led some to believe that what we're about to hear, what we're about to look at together, is a story that we have already heard before. It's just different versions of the same event. But as we'll soon discover, while there are a lot of similarities between these two stories, this isn't the same event being retold. No, what we have here is something of a replay a divinely orchestrated second chance, not just for David, but also for Saul, for them both to learn and grow from their past mistakes. Let's listen to 1 Samuel 26, and as you do, keep those Bibles open, because the full story of chapter 26 goes well beyond what we're about to hear. Good morning, Grace. Today's reading is from 1 Samuel 26, 1 through 12. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gebeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hekilah, which faces Jessimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hekilah facing Jessimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was laying inside the camp 
with the army encamped around him. Then David asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, a son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down to the camp with me, to Saul? I will go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So did you see what I mean? If you've been with us throughout the story of 1 Samuel, what we read here in chapter 26 sounds an awful lot like events we just heard about in chapter 24. But again, as we'll soon learn, there are important differences between these two episodes. As this chapter opens, David is still on the run, still on the run from the threat of King Saul. He continues to hide in the wilderness area west of the Dead Sea, moving from place to place. And David really hadn't moved all that far away out of that area, probably because the hilly terrain of that region was just dotted with an abundance, uh, almost a maze of caves. So it provided many ideal hiding places for him and his men. But David, however, soon finds himself in an all-too-familiar situation, someplace he's been before, as the residents of a village in that region, the Ziphites, remember them, once again alert King Saul to David's geographical location. The last time the Ziphites informed the king of David's location, it forced David and his men to pack their bags and move on. And no doubt the Ziphites, perceiving David's presence again, both as a threat and a nuisance, are counting on the same outcome as they offer King Saul this valuable intelligence. Now, the last time the Ziphites gave away David's location, King Saul was already in their neighborhood. Do you remember? He was on the hunt in hot pursuit of David. But this time around, it's the Ziphites who come to King Saul because Saul's at home in Gebeah, apparently having given up his pursuit of David. And this makes sense if we recall the last time we encountered King Saul back in chapter 24, Because at the end of that chapter, after a chance encounter where, unbeknownst to Saul, David had both the means and the opportunity to take him out, but instead spared his life. At the very end of that chapter, do you remember? King Saul tearfully confessed he had wrongly accused David, that surely David was God's anointed and worthy to be king. And then King Saul departed peacefully, do you recall? Seemingly ending his pursuit of David. So... It seems as though when the Ziphites come that Saul's finally put a stop to this obsessive quest to eliminate his perceived rival. But as we soon see, as the saying goes, old habits die hard. Whatever we are obsessed with ends up dictating all we ever think about and do. And when the Ziphites come to the king and say, hey, king, we know where David's hiding, and they tell him a second time, it doesn't take long for Saul to forget everything he previously said. It doesn't take much 
for the king to rationalize the renewal of his campaign against David, something he's already acknowledged as wrong and unjust. Saul just can't resist pursuing David. So immediately taking 3,000 of his best soldiers with him, King Saul makes the 25-mile trek south from Gibeah to the wilderness of Ziph to where David is hiding. And Saul and his troops, they pitch their camp for the night on a hillside close to the road that they've been traveling on in order to get there. Now David, for his part, David remains in the more remote part of the wilderness, but despite being in that remote wilderness, he's become aware of Saul's presence in the area. And David does a little recon, some surveillance to ascertain the exact location of the king and his forces. Now here's again a difference between these two stories. The last time David and King Saul met in this wilderness, David was retreating as Saul was advancing. But this time around, the tables are turned. David takes the initiative and pursues Saul. As David approaches with his men, he looks down and spies the king asleep in the center of the camp, easily identified by his size, remember Saul was a rather tall gentleman, as well as the king's armor and his spear. And next to Saul lies Saul's cousin, Abner, who also happens to be the commander of the king's army. And then the rest of King Saul's troops are encamped around both of them. Waiting for an opportune moment after spying Saul, David asks who will join him in going down into the heart of the king's camp. And David's nephew, Abishai, volunteers to accompany him by sneaking behind the enemy lines under the cover of nightfall. Now, again, here's another difference. The last time David had the opportunity to sneak up on Saul, it was the result of an unexpected encounter with the king in a cave. But this time, the situation is very different as David knowingly, deliberately heads out for the king's location. David comes across Saul not by chance as before, but by choice. Which begs the question, why is David doing this? Has David, like Saul, forgotten the lessons of his past? Is David failing to learn from his previous mistakes and thus seeks to penetrate the king's camp in order to once and for all take him out? These are questions that will be answered shortly in our story. But for now, I want you to just picture this scene. Picture it, okay? The king has carefully positioned himself at the innermost part of the camp. And again, Abner, a fierce warrior, is lying right next to the king, serving as his bodyguard. From Saul and Abner in the center, what I want you to picture is the king's 3,000 soldiers looking something like, say, a concentric ripple when a rock is thrown into the calm pool of water. And with any given troop deployment, also picture this, that there would be sentinels standing watch over the encampment itself. So David and Abishai begin their encroachment by having to first get past these guards. Then they both needed to carefully step their way through a literal maze of human bodies. One wrong move, one ill-placed step, and they will awaken the army that surrounds them. Successfully making it all the way to King Saul looks to be impossible. Never mind the fact that if they make it there, then they'll have to face the challenge of being able to get back out without being noticed. But the narrator of this story informs us of how David and Abishai were able to pull this off, to get to the heart of the camp, to exactly where Saul is, finding themselves standing over, looking down at the king, sleeping peacefully before them. This was not just some skillful maneuvering on their part. This was more than just a stroke of luck. No, we're told it's God who has caused a deep slumber to come upon Saul and his troops. 
It is the Lord who has induced such a soundness of sleep that these normally highly alert warriors who would stir at the snap of a stick now find themselves oblivious as David and Abishai have unrestricted access to the king's campsite. Now, even though David and Abishai aren't explicitly told that the Lord had done this for them, both of them clearly sense this miracle is the work of the Lord. I mean, Abishai even goes so far as to presume why God has done this. He perceives divine intervention as indicating divine intention and confidently informs David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now, where has David heard that one before? Oh yeah, that's the same thing his Ben said back in that fateful moment in the cave when Saul inadvertently walked right into where David and his men were hiding. But notice that Abishai, who was likely there in the cave at that time, who seemingly remembers that incident, how David hesitated in killing the king, notice how Abishai, therefore, here whispers something else to David. You don't have to kill Saul. Let me do it. It'll only take one blow, and the blood will be on my hands, not yours. It's a tempting offer. It's only logical to Abishai. God provided this opportunity yet again for you to take out your self-declared enemy, someone who has gone back on his word to you on more than one occasion, someone who isn't going to stop pursuing you until you're dead. I mean, isn't that why you brought me down here, David? Isn't that why you asked me to come so I could take care of this for you? Isn't this the reason that we were able to noiselessly tiptoe around 3,000 troops without them stirring because the Lord wants us to finally put an end to all this fighting and violence? Oh, how easily we can assign causality to correlation, especially when we perceive the Lord's movement in our midst. Beware, my friends, beware of putting words in God's mouth that the Lord hasn't spoken. Take care not to presume to know the will of God just because the Spirit has offered you some direction. How quickly we can go from following Jesus to getting ahead of him. Let me repeat again something we learned back in chapter 24 that still applies here. Every golden opportunity is not necessarily a sign from God to do whatever we want to do. Sometimes God allows us to be tested putting before us the very thing we believe, we're convinced we want. God puts it before us in order for us to learn and understand that the key to life, living the way God intended, living a life marked by peace and joy and contentment that only God can give, is not about getting and taking everything we want. It's about waiting and relying on the Lord to provide everything we need, all that he has promised to us. And David to his credit, appears to be making some headway in learning this lesson as he resists the natural inclination to read this situation as some sort of God-given license to take matters into his own hands. No, instead, David stays Abishai's hand, forbidding him to kill King Saul. And he essentially provides the same reasons as he did back in the cave when he was rebuking his men for having the same idea. But notice in verse 10 that David goes beyond what he said before. David adds, and surely as the Lord lives, he will be the one to remove Saul. In other words, David trusts, he assures Abishai, the Lord will remove King Saul from power. So David not only doesn't have to do that, but therefore David shouldn't get in the way of whatever the Lord is doing. So David refuses to take Saul's life. But he does take both the king's spear and his water jug, both of these items symbolic of Saul's strength and sustenance. 
And having taken hold of both of these items as Abishai is instructed by David to come back with him, it's not hard to imagine, isn't it? Abishai shaking his head as they slip back into the safety of darkness, weaving their way once again through that maze of bodies surrounding the king. It's not hard to imagine Abishai muttering under his breath, we did all this, a suicide mission, only to grab a spear and a water jug? What was the point of all this? What is going on here? If David recognized the Lord did not orchestrate this movement so that he could take King Saul out, what then does David see that God is allowing him to do? Well, we soon find out. We soon find out as David, establishing himself on top of a hill far from Saul's reach, now makes his presence known, not just to the king, but to his entire camp. Still in the dark of night, or perhaps in the dimly lit early morning hours, Bleary-eyed soldiers wake up to the sound of David specifically calling out not to Saul, but to Abner, their general, their commander. And David exercises unrestrained sarcasm as he openly questions how the king's highest officer and best warrior, let alone 3,000 of his best troops, have allowed an intruder to breach their security and protection. How is it, David continues, that a would-be possible assassin was able to penetrate their forces to get so close to Saul, to be standing over the king, able to murder him in an instant. And none of them, including Abner, were even aware of it. And if anyone doubts David's claim as he's saying all this, he then holds up the king's spear and personal water jug as proof of his accusation. Can you envision the embarrassment of Abner and the humiliation of all the king's men as they at that moment looked at the ground inches from Saul's head and saw the imprints from where the spear and the water jug once rested, and then as they turned and visibly saw a pair of footprints leading both all the way into the heart of their camp and back out. At this point, King Saul actually wakes up amidst all the shouting and the confusion. And Saul, as he's waking up, hearing a familiar voice, he asks if it's David. And David confirms from afar his presence and then immediately tones down his sarcasm. He becomes very reverential as he holds up the king's spear. And as he does that, as he speaks, we see David's intentions in this perplexing invasion of Saul's camp. They become clear. What we find out is David took the risk not to harm the king, but to make his repeated case for his innocence. David is demonstrating his loyalty by guarding Saul from harm, saving his life yet again, even as Abner, his bodyguard, and all his troops have failed. David makes it clear in this speech to Saul. He didn't go down into the king's camp frivolously. This wasn't some kind of, some kind of spur-of-the-moment prank. No, David had a plan, and it was to once again prove that he is Saul's advocate and not his enemy. As David does not use the king's spear against him, Saul gets the point. Saul recognizes his wrongdoing. He acknowledges David has proven his loyalty by sparing his life yet again. And the king pleads with David to come home, promising not to harm him further. But David, while having protested his innocence very reverently, being respectful, David's not so naive as to trust promises that King Saul has already broken many times in the past. He knows better than to think that Saul's repentance will last. And so instead, David invites the king's detail to send a man up to retrieve Saul's spear. And once again, King Saul and David part company peacefully. They will never, in fact, see each other again because the time is quickly arriving when Saul's reckoning will come, not by David's hand, but by the Lord's. And that's our story. And as I mentioned at the start of this message, 
What we have in this chapter is something of a reprise of a previous encounter between David and King Saul. And some of the details, as I've tried to point out to you, are very similar, but there are also some that are very different. The overall gist, however, of the situation remains the same. David finds himself with yet another opportunity to eliminate Saul, another window seemingly opened by God for just that purpose, at least according to his closest friends. And once again, King Saul ends up confronting in a very tangible and unsettling way that David is not his enemy, that the person he's persecuting is in fact his best asset, his strongest protector. Both David and Saul receive in this moment a divinely orchestrated second chance, a second chance to learn and grow from their past mistakes. First, let's consider David. Let's talk about David. Previously, the first time David found himself with an opportunity to kill Saul, back in the cave, goaded on by others, he nearly took matters into his own hands and did violence against the king. It was only at the very last minute that David pulled back his sword and instead of killing Saul, executed a power move, shaming the king instead by cutting off a section of his royal robe. A lesser offense than taking Saul's life to be sure, but still a great wrongdoing, which in the aftermath, David openly confess confesses his guilt. And just before this episode, not in an, in an encounter with King Saul, but someone who's basically Saul's alter ego back in chapter 25, someone who has been just as foolish as Saul has, in a momentary dispute with a wealthy landowner named Nabal, which we looked at last week, David nearly makes the same mistake, as he prepares not only to enact vengeance on Nabal, but everyone who works for him. If you remember that story, it's only thanks to the intercession of a woman named Abigail, Nabal's wife, who emboldened by the Lord, comes between David and his desire for retribution. It's only because of that and her cautioning him not to play God that a devastating national tragedy is averted. And so now here we are again, here David is. And it's not actually the second time, but it's the third time around in a situation where he is tempted to take matters into his own hands. This time around, there's no need for speculation about God's involvement in this chain of events. Because clearly, the Lord enables David to get close to King Saul, close enough to take his life. The Lord makes it possible. And this time around, as we heard, the situation becomes even more enticing, as David doesn't have to get any blood on his hands, right? He can look the other way. He just has to step aside and let Abishai do his dirty work for him. Think about that moment. David has been wrongfully accused, right? Violently attacked, continually persecuted, and lied to again and again by King Saul. What would we do in that moment? What do we do when someone wrongs us, not just once, but again and again, lies to us repeatedly, even as they keep hurting us? What do we do? Don't we believe that in that circumstance, we have permission to strike back? Isn't it conventional wisdom in such a situation like that to get them before they get you? But David, we again see, finally begins to learn a different lesson than the one that we're so often taught. David, trusting the Lord, will in his timing and in his own way defend and strengthen him, David, trusting in the Lord, puts his life in God's hands rather than taking Saul's life into his own. David, long before Jesus commands us to do so, David turns the other cheek. David loves his self-declared enemy enough to value his life rather than to take it. And in doing all this, David doesn't subject himself to further harm. No, 
David keeps protesting his innocence all along the way. David keeps seeking justice from Saul, but David puts his faith not in whatever Saul promises, not in whatever Saul does or doesn't do. No, David puts his faith in the Lord's deliverance. Now, whereas David learns from the chances that the Lord's provided to him, King Saul repeatedly doesn't. I mean, ask yourself, as we've been in 1 Samuel for a while now, how many times already, not just here, has Saul, by the grace of God, been given the opportunity to recognize the error of his ways, to learn from his mistakes and grow from them in the spirit? And yet again and again, Saul will cry and confess, he's done wrong, he's acted foolishly, he's fighting a losing battle. Again and again, Saul will promise to make peace. Saul will say he'll stop inflicting pain on others. Saul says he's going to work towards reconciliation with David. And yet every time, Saul never actually learns anything. He never yields to the Lord's grace. He never allows himself, his heart, his mind, his actions to be changed by God. I mean, don't get me wrong, Saul knows how to say the right things. Saul may even believe he means what he says because he truly feels bad and remorseful in the moment, sincerely. Saul may even regret what he's doing. Saul may even recognize what he's doing is wrong. But Saul refuses to live according to what he knows is true, through abiding in the Spirit, trusting in the Lord. Instead, Saul lives according to what he wants to be true, to what he insists he deserves. David, on the other hand, David wrestles with the same thing. David wrestles with what he wants to be true, what he believes he deserves. And yet, ultimately, David is learning to respond by trusting in what the Lord has revealed is true. Trusting in what the Lord is doing in his life rather than acting out of his own desires and wisdom. Don't get me wrong, David's not perfect. He's not perfect, but at least he's learning. He's growing through the grace that God is giving him. And my friends, in both David and Saul, we see two reflections of our humanity. Two postures we can take in response to the grace that God gives us. And the good news of the gospel that we see here is we worship a God of second chances. We worship a God of second chances. Now that's a, a, quite a phrase. Let me be clear what I mean and don't mean in saying this. When I say God gives second chances, I am not suggesting that the Lord has forgiven us in Christ and now the rest is up to us. There is a huge difference between advancing a second chance gospel, which I'm not doing, and declaring we worship a God of second chances. The gospel of Jesus Christ is much more, so much more, than giving us a clean slate of forgiveness when it comes to our brokenness, our sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, not in any way, this idea that we're forgiven so that we've got a second chance to get things right. No, the very reason we need Christ, the very reason we need Jesus, is because we can't ever get anything right on our own, no matter how many chances we get. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims something completely different, not that we need a second chance. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims we don't need a second chance to get things right on our own. What we need is a Savior who gets it right the first time, for all time, for every single one of us. We don't earn our salvation through the gift of a series of unlimited fresh chances. We're saved, we're forgiven by grace alone. And nothing that we do or don't do changes that. We're made righteous by Jesus so that we can freely and fully grow by the grace of God into who we were created to be in Christ. The God we worship is not only the God of second chances, the God we worship is the God of another chance and another chance, more grace than we could ever possibly imagine. 
And these repeated chances given by God have nothing to do with earning or deserving anything from the Lord. All the chances we get are repeated opportunities secured by the work of Christ, coming through the leading and power of the Spirit and the truth of God's Word. All these repeated chances, every chance we get is a gift from God to learn and grow in this grace we have been given, to become all we were meant to be. And that's good news because we're all works in progress, right? We're all still learning. We're all still growing. We're all still maturing into who we are in Christ. The key, the invitation is to follow Jesus and learn from him, to yield to the leading of the Spirit, to abide in the wisdom of God's word, rather than to go our own way, rather than to live by our own truth, rather than to try to control and craft our own lives. My friends, the Lord gives us grace. The Lord gives us faith. The Lord gives us his word and his spirit. The Lord will give us every chance we need to grow, to be changed for the better through his presence and work in our lives. The Lord gives us everything, but we have to be willing to learn. We have to be willing to be discipled. We have to functionally and tangibly live out of all that we're given, not for our glory, but for God's. Not advancing our agendas, but seeking first the kingdom. Saul professes throughout this story, not just this chapter, the story of 1 Samuel. Saul professes to be God's man, the Lord's king. But Saul's actions repeatedly reveal otherwise. Saul possesses a lot of knowledge about God. Intellectually, he's assented on more than one occasion that the Lord is in control of his life. He's confessed it. That he, Saul, recognizes what the Lord's will is, and it's for David to be king, not him. And yet Saul keeps living, not learning from God, not growing in the Lord, but still trying to build his own kingdom. David, again, not perfect, but on the other hand, relying on the grace of God through the repetitive work of the Spirit upon him is learning, not always the first time, learning, not always easily, but still growing, for now, into becoming the person, the king the kind of king that God desires for him to be. Because you see, my friends, becoming who we are in Christ is not a one-time prayer. Becoming who we are in Christ is not the end result of asking Jesus to come into our heart. Learning and maturing in this new abundant life that we're offered, that we've been given by Jesus, is not simply a matter of making a decision for Christ. It's choosing to follow Jesus with every step we take and in each decision we make. Because the Christian life is not just a profession of faith, it's a journey of faith. It's lifelong learning that comes by submitting to and growing out of the grace of God one step at a time, day by day by day. It's always coming back to Jesus. Coming back to Jesus, especially when we find ourselves starting to get ahead of him. Every day, every single moment is another chance for us to learn, to grow, to mature, to be changed in Christ. Are we recognizing and taking every chance we get by the grace of God to think, to feel, to speak, to act differently? Every chance to become the best version of ourselves in Jesus? What could happen? What might change? How would our relationships improve? How would our perspective shift? Our capacity to persevere, how would it enlarge? How would our ability to generously give rather than to simply take? How would it expand? if we became not just professed believers in Jesus, but actual students of our master, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's make the most of the opportunities that we continue to receive by the grace of God. 
let's give thanks to the Lord that he is indeed a God of second chances. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.